All right. Well, today we are continuing in our uh, journey through the Gospel of Matthew. If you have your Bibles and you like to follow along, we're in uh, Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to go through verses 1 through 21. So we're going to cover quite a bit today. Before we get into it, when I was a teenager, I really didn't like to be told what to do. And I think that's not all that unusual. Uh, those of you who are parents with teenage, teenagers, uh, you probably run into that every now and then. And uh, for my case, it was especially when it was on weekends, because I wanted to spend weekends with my friends, and I had to make plans. But my dad would often have different ideas. He would uh, wake me up on Saturday morning, and he would present me with the list of things that he had planned for me to do on the weekend. And I used to really, really uh, resent that. And it wasn't because he was asking me to do a lot. It was usually just some yard work or something like that. But it was because I didn't know what his plans were for me until he presented it on Saturday morning. And so I would, I would be frustrated by that. Now, having been uh, out of my teenage years for, oh, at least 10 years or so, uh, and having been a dad myself with grown children, I look back on it and understand where my dad was coming from a little bit. But still, it's just that idea of people telling us what to do. My lovely wife hates to be told what to do. Uh, if I really want something, I will just demand it. Like on my birthday, Cindy, I demand that you do not make anything special for my birthday. Then I'm pretty much guaranteed something special will be made. And if I, if I really want to guarantee it, I throw in there, submit, woman. Then she definitely, <laughs> definitely will do what I don't want her to do in theory. See, I'm pretty smart, but I said that in front of her. And now I'm either going to pay for it or it'll never happen again, one or the other. But I don't think it's unusual for us to to uh, not like to be told what to do. People don't really like it, especially when it's accompanied with that demand is accompanied by guilt. You know, when you have that demand salted with a little bit of guilt, that really is the one that we, we don't like. My dad, when I used to complain about, I don't want to do yard work, he'd say, well, you're part of this family too. That was his go-to line to kind of salt it with guilt. And one time I said, well, no one asked me if I wanted to be part of this family. And that didn't go over very well. I didn't do anything that Saturday. <laughs> but ironically, demands attached with guilt is very often how people feel about the church. And I say ironically because when you read the New Testament, the message found throughout the New Testament is that demands and guilt really aren't the tools that God uses. God wants to be in a relationship with us. And so he doesn't really use these tools of demand and guilt. He, he talks much more in the New Testament about relationship, knowing him, being close to him, wanting to be next to him, wanting to be in worship, not demanding it. It's the same we talked about last week with the tithe. The scripture, the New Testament says God loves a hilarious giver. It's actually, the word in, in Greek is hilarious, and we get the word hilarious. He likes a cheerful giver, a happy giver. He's not demanding if this isn't where you're at, fine. It's kind of where God is at. I want you to be there because you want to be there. And one of the ways that Jesus confounded people throughout his ministry was by his attitude towards demands. And in this case, that we're going to be looking at today, the demand of the Sabbath. Because even though God created the Sabbath for us to rest, Human beings got a hold of this gift from God where we would rest and recover 
from a week's worth of work and took it and twisted it and made it so that resting became difficult. That rest itself became a form of work. And this is just an example of how human beings very often take things that God gives us and we think we're smarter than God. So we either add to it or turn it or twist it somehow and we end up always messing things up. And the Sabbath, especially in the time of Christ, was a good example of something that was meant to be restful, given to the people for the sake of the people, and yet humanity had taken it and twisted it and turned it into something that it was never meant to be. And in fact, Jesus' attitude toward the Sabbath was one of the main issues that the religious leaders in his time, and we always hear about the Pharisees, had with Jesus. And the reason why we hear most often about the Pharisees in the scriptures, the Pharisees were among the people. They weren't the temple priests. Those were the Essenes. The Pharisees were among the people. They were in the synagogues. They were much more of a grassroots type people. And Jesus actually says that what the Pharisees teach is fine. It's just their attitude and their actions are wrong. And the Pharisees had a hard time with Jesus because Jesus said very challenging things. And, we, and we've looked back as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew. And, you know, if you put yourself in the Pharisee's shoes, some of the things that Jesus says are pretty shocking. And today is going to be no different. And it's interesting, it's kind of funny when you think about who Jesus is, that someone would tell him how he should conduct himself on the Sabbath. There's kind of an irony in that. But let's read the scripture. This is Matthew, starting in chapter 12, verse 1. It says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And so he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went away and plotted how they might kill him, kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed, and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, 
and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. So chapter 12 of the Gospel of Matthew is really going through three places of authority where Jesus is challenged. He's challenged about his authority regarding the Sabbath. He's challenged about his authority and by whose name he commands demons to leave, exorcism. And he's challenged by the Pharisees to show a sign to prove that he is who he says he is. And these three things in chapter 12 are the areas of challenge to Jesus' authority which come up, the Sabbath, exorcism, and signs. And today we're going to be dealing with the Sabbath. And when it came to the Sabbath, the rabbis in Jesus' time had 39 ways, 39 categories of work. And within those 39 categories of work, they had ways that they determined, you know, the specifics of what you can do and what you could not do. For example, there was a category of work about writing, and it was very specific in there how much you could write. For example, you weren't allowed to put two words together to form a thought. You could write lots of different random words, but you couldn't put them together. Some are very specific in that way. Some are more vague. There's, there's some kind of vague categories like what it means to lift up or tear down property. While that sounds kind of specific, when you get into the reading of the, the rabbis, it's somewhat vague. But all of these categories are extra biblical. They don't come out of the Old Testament. They come from the commentaries of rabbis upon the law of Moses, and that becomes important later. But what is clear is that we still deal with attitudes like this today. It's not as though this idea of humanity trying to take the, the Word of God and to shape it in such a way that it fits their sense of righteousness and then try to impose that on other folks is gone. I mean, that's, that's around even to this day. People do that today. When I was in the U.S., I used to get these little books, booklets sent to me in the mail at the church that I was pastoring at. And they were from a particular denomination who would always end all these booklets by saying, if I was not worshiping on Saturday, then I was going to hell. Because the only true Sabbath was Saturday, and if I did not keep that Sabbath on Saturday, I was going to hell. It wasn't about my relationship with Christ. It was about my relationship with the Sabbath day, which is somewhat ironic given the, the scripture that we read in Romans, which just says, you know, it doesn't really matter what day you hold a special as long as you do it with thanks be to God. That's why it's, it's perfectly fine if you ever attend a church somewhere that has uh, a worship service on, on a Saturday night. It's fine to worship on Saturday. It's fine to worship on Sunday. It's fine to worship on Wednesday. It's pretty sure it's okay to do it on Monday and Tuesday, too, if you wanted to. And hey, you can even throw Thursday in there and, and Friday. Wow. You can do the whole thing. But people get really hung up on, you know, you have to do things in a particular way in order to please God somehow, and in their minds they have, they've defined on how you please God. And so this is just something we deal with even today. But what was the attitude we see in Jesus regarding the Sabbath? Well, the encounter that we look at in the Scripture begins when Jesus' disciples are pl plucking the heads of grain on the Sabbath and they're you know, rubbing it between their hands and they're eating the grain. Now, it's actually not illegal, according to the Mosaic Law, to take grain from someone else's field as long as you don't thrash it. You're allowed to pick it by hand. It's kind of part of charity. You're not allowed to go in there and harvest it. So they're not breaking the law there. The Pharisees say you're break, their disciples are breaking the law because they're working on the Sabbath. It was considered work to pluck that grain 
and to rub it and to eat the, grain, the little kernels of grain. That was considered work. And that's what they get angry with Jesus. And so Jesus does something interesting. He's very subtle. Jesus does this all throughout his readings, I mean, all throughout his teaching. You've got to read what he says carefully. He refers them to the story of their national hero, which is King David. And it's important to understand that King David at the time of Jesus is sort of a can-do-no-wrong type of hero. And when you read the Bible, for example, you have this, the history of David that is found in, in First and Second Kings, and then you have a history of David that is found in, the, in Chronicles. There's two, there's First and Second Chronicles. The Chronicles David is cleaned up. You don't have the Bathsheba story in the Chronicles when it talks about David. The Chronicles David is kind of this, this perfect David. You have the other David with all his mistakes, warts and all, in other parts of the Bible. And I find that interesting because Chronicles was most likely written during the Babylonian exile. And during that time when the people were in exile, they rewrote, they rewrote their history. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean that they added anything to it. They just chose to omit some things. And in that omission, they kind of cleaned up this guy that became sort of their national hero, the guy that they, they really kind of considered themselves, you know, he is the founder or the, the really penultimate king of Israel. He's not the founder, but he's that, he's that ultimate king. He kind of acts both as king and at times priest, and he's warrior. You know, David, when you take out all the bad stuff, is a pretty cool dude. And so Jesus says to them, he specifically points out first by saying, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry. Now, the reason why Jesus goes back to reading is because there's a difference between what was written about David and the oral tradition of the rabbis. And again, that's not all that uncommon. In the Catholic Church and in the Orthodox Church, you have the written word, and then you have oral tradition. And they basically hold oral tradition and the written word at an equal level. And IBCD, one of the things that dis distinguished the Baptists is that we only hold the Scripture as authoritative. There is no real there oral tradition that we hold as authoritative. And Jesus, when he points out to this thing, haven't you read this, he's very much pointing to the text because the oral tradition is different than what the, the text says about David. They, again, they kind of clean him up. And when David when, and, the, and the event that Jesus points to is one of these events that, that you kind of, when you, and you understand it, it makes it a little bit like, huh, why are you using that as an example? Because this is the event. This is found in 1 Samuel chapter 21, and I'm not going to read it because it's quite long there, but if you want in your own studies, 1 Samuel chapter 21, read what he's talking about. David is on the run. David was often on the run from King Saul. Uh, if you remember your Old Testament stories, for those of you who, who may have read it or you, you grew up with it, King Saul was the first king of Israel. He was very jealous of David because David was, was beloved by the people. You know, they would say Saul has, has defeated his thousands when it comes to the enemies, but David has defeated his tens of thousands. And Saul just found David to be very threatening, so he kept trying to kill him. Plus, Saul was a little bit nuts. And... Uh, and so David's on the run, and he goes to this place of worship. Now, this is before any temple had been built. So you had these places of worship, and this place was called Nob. And he goes there, and there's a place of worship, and, he, and David says, I need some bread because I'm on an errand from the king. David lies to the priest. See, this is, this is these parts where you kind of go, huh? 
How is this a, a story of great integrity? David lies to the priest and says, I'm, doing, I'm on an errand from the king, and I need something to eat, me and my men. And the priest says, I don't have anything for you to eat except this bread. And one of the things that they used to do in the, in the places of worship and then later in the temple is they would put out bread. It was called the show bread. It was a, a uh, kind of a grain offering to the Lord. And it would be out there for a week. And at, the, and at the end of every week, the priests would eat that bread. It was meant only for the priests to eat. Well, the priest says, I don't have anything to give you. And, and they agree between the David and the priest that he can have the show bread. That's what Jesus is saying. It was unlawful for him to eat this bread because this was only meant for the priests. And so David takes the bread and goes along his way. And the story really doesn't end there because there's this guy there called Dueg who overheard the conversation. He went back and he told Saul what this priest had done. The priest had acted in good faith, but the priest is executed for helping David. So this is, this is the, the story that Jesus is referring to. And he said, well, why would you refer to that one? Well, the point he's making to them is, you guys, this is your hero. You guys think King David is the best of the best. He's the bee's knees. He's everything that you would ever want to be and hope your sons to be. Your great hero, David, lied to a priest in order to get bread. Bread he wasn't supposed to eat according to the law. The priest paid the price for that. And yet, you're after my disciples for picking little grain, heads of grain and eating it. What is wrong with you? Why are you super okay with what your hero David did? But my disciples pick a few heads of grain, which isn't illegal to pick out of someone else's field, and you're pointing your finger at them and saying that they are violating the Sabbath? He reminds them then, technically, that priests who offer sacrifice on the Sabbath and also change that ceremonial bread on the Sabbath are also breaking the law. That's what he says, they desecrate those days. Because the priest, when he offers sacrifice on the Sabbath, he's working. And this is something that's acknowledged in the Old Testament. He's working. But he is considered innocent on that. Why? He's considered innocent because it's the priority of his role. The priority of the priest's role is greater than keeping that particular law of not working. In order for the priest to fulfill his function and in order for the temple to fulfill its function, the priest has to work on that day. And so it's considered, it's considered okay. In fact, when I used to get told by Seventh-day Adventists, they're, they're the ones who are Saturday only, they would say, I'm breaking the Sabbath because I worship on Sunday. And I'd tell them, kind of as a joke, but I'd tell them, no, 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 I rest on Saturday. I work on Sunday. And then they'd be like, well, huh, huh, huh. And then Jesus says something that is, that is profound. He tells them this. I tell you, one greater than the temple is here. Now, these kind of statements made by Jesus, I think we just kind of read over now. We don't really understand it in the context, the, the cultural context and the religious context. But understand what he's saying to the Pharisees here. This proclamation is like a right hook coming out of nowhere, just kind of blowing their minds. Because they're complaining about this minor law breaking. They're kind of following Jesus around. They're, going, ah, they're eating grain on the Sabbath. And they're just kind of being petty. But they find themselves getting sucked into this conversation where Jesus ends up challenging their understanding of the temple, 
challenging the function of the temple and also reminding them that Jesus has priority over the temple. One greater than the temple is here. And these priorities that Jesus is talking about, he talks about David's need overcame the priority of the showbread. And then he, st- and he says, when what the priests do on their day in order to sacrifice and, and change out the showbread, the priority of what they are representing overcomes the law, is greater than the law. And so then he wraps that up by saying, and you know what? Someone greater than the temple is here. And this is an audacious statement. It would be like someone coming up, standing in front of you here and saying, you know what? I am greater, and my priority of who I am is greater than all the worship songs you sing. My priority is greater than any prayer you lift up. My priority is greater than any sermon that has ever spoken. What would you think if someone came up and said that? Would you, would you go, oh yeah, that sounds good. No, I think a lot of us would be extremely uncomfortable. In fact, some might leave, and the expectation would be for, for leadership in the church to shut that guy down. Because who would say such a thing? In order to say such a thing, either you're demonic, you're insane, or you're God. Those are really the three possibilities you have. You're demonic, you're getting up there, you're just like, it's all about me, hey, worship me, kind of an antichrist kind of thing. You're completely nuts to think that you're this, or you are truly a priority over the temple, a priority over the worship, because you are the object and the author of worship and of prayer and of the temple. Jesus says a profound thing when he says to the Pharisees, one greater than the temple is here. This is why they want to kill him. Sometimes we read and go, Jesus is just being nice. Why do these Pharisees always want to kill him? Because he's saying stuff like this. And if you don't believe that he's Lord, then you have to decide that he's a lunatic or he's a liar. That's what C.S. Lewis used to come up with. He goes, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. And it's statements like these that challenge that. What are you going to believe about him? Because Jesus doesn't give us any wiggle room. And he does it on the Sabbath. This day that is held in such high regard by the Jewish people and even Christians today, even though we've shifted. And it was on Saturday, just to be clear. Jewish Sabbath is on Saturday. It begins Friday night and it goes through Saturday. He blew their minds. And Jesus knows that he blew their minds. And then he continues to blow their minds. He says, If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not condemn the innocent. And then he drops another bomb. He uses his favorite self-titled Son of Man. And he says, For the Son of Man, speaking about himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. Whoa! This is why the Pharisees are like, Damn, they don't, they don't like this guy. And Jesus is just pointing out this age-old problem of religion, which is that religion often very much reflects the character of humanity than it does God. It reflects our character. It reflects our prejudices. It reflects our likes and our dislikes. 
Our religion as human beings tends to be very culturally focused. There's a religion that came out of the United States which said a man, male, if he follows a certain set of rules, gets to become the god of his own planet. And not only that, but he can have several wives. Now that is a man-made for men religion. You get to become a god. The woman doesn't become a goddess unless you as the man decide you want her to be a goddess. And you can have several wives. That is a man-made religion. By men for men. And it's one of the fastest growing religions in the world today. You know what one that is? Yeah, Mormonism. You, know, you see those, girls, those folks running around with elder so-and-so? Yeah. But he says this. If you, basically what he's saying, though, here is that, you know, you don't really, you don't understand God's character. If you knew what these words mean, that I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He say if you, he's basically saying if you understood the character of God, if you understood the nature of God, then you would value mercy and all that mercy involves instead of obsessing over rules that hurt other human beings created in the image of God. He said, you know, you're basically willing to hurt or have this person. Then he goes and, and we get the story about the man's shriveled hand. You're willing to let this person stay in the, the, the status of suffering because you figure it's better for one creating the image of God to suffer than to do some way that you've conceived of work on the Sabbath. That's not the character of God. That's the character of man. And he goes on to talk about that. He gets into this healing on the Sabbath. He says, going from that place, he went into their synagogue. So Jesus is bold, man. Jesus just gets done telling these Pharisees, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And then he goes into their synagogue <laughs> to continue teaching. And Jesus is bold. And a man with a shriveled hand was there looking for a reason to accuse him. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to him, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take, care, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was completely restored as sound as the other. I think verse 12 pretty much sums up this whole event. How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? How, you know, and, and we think, well, that's a no-brainer. But really? How many of you love your dog more than people in general? Yeah, probably a lot of you do. They, when you think about just kind of people in general, people walking up and down the street, that guy that cut you off while you're driving to church, if that was a dog that ran in front of you, you'd put on the brakes and go, oh. But it's a person. And we're all this. We, for some reason, we're all this way. You know, we have a tendency to, to really devalue other people. How much, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? And really, it comes back to priorities. Do you want to please God? Do you really want to know God, please God? Then you have to know and learn his priorities. And without understanding God's priorities, our faith just becomes some dry religion where we're trying to just kind of tick a box or fulfill a requirement which we don't understand. And what does that lead to? It leads to resentment. I don't understand this. Why do I got to do this stupid thing? It leads to resentment. For example, why, why are we supposed to be part of a church? Why are we called to be part of a church? Because there are so many people that say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to a church. Why not? Well, I don't need to worship God with other people. As if it's kind of like, 
you know, like you're weak to have to worship God with other people. Let me tell you, it is far easier to not have to deal with the weirdness of people and just kind of go off in the woods and hug a tree and feel close to God than it is to actually work out what it means to be in a community of faith where sometimes you have to go through the hard things. You have to talk about the hard issues. You have to work things out. You have to learn to be less self-centered. You have to have a thick skin to not be easily offended. It's not easy to be in a church. Amen? <laughs> amen. It's the loudest amen I'm ever going to get. And as a kid, I saw church as an obligation. Yeah, I had to go on Sundays. My parents dragged me out of bed. I had to go. I don't know why I had to go. I didn't want to go. I resented it. It wasn't until I became a believer that I understood the church is the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, you know, beloved by God as a place where we can grow in faith, where iron sharpens iron, where we can have these deep discussions about what it means to be who we are, a human being created in the image of God, so wonderfully and awesomely made, and yet so terribly and fundamentally flawed at the same time. And how do we... How does this all come together? Where does grace flow? Where does the Holy Spirit build us up? And it's an amazing thing when you understand what it's about. It's a lovely thing. It's a powerful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's the thing that defined my life eventually when I was in seminary, and the call of God in my life was to take care of my bride. I didn't go into seminary with this high understanding of the church. church was, I liked the church, but, you know, I didn't have a very deep understanding of it. Later, there came this place, this is my bride. God loves the church, not just IBCD, the community of faith that is Christianity. He loves it, wants to nurture it, take care of my bride. And yet, whew, historically, the church has been all over the place. It's been exploited. It's been lied to. It's given out lies. The church has been kind of a disaster. The miracle of the church throughout history is that it still exists in spite of human beings' best attempts to destroy it. And the ones who tried the hardest to destroy it were people very often acting out, supposedly, in the name of Jesus. But this is what it's about. It's, it's, it's taking the priority of God and learning to love what God loves. We talked about tithing last week, you know. And I'm sure, you know, people, some people heard that sermon just kind of went, ah, that pastor trying to pick my pocket again. Well, if that's what you understand about it, then you're going to resent it. If, it's, if you have no real understanding of what it means to be generous, no real understanding of how susceptible we are to idolatry, then you're just going to hear a sermon like that and go, that's just a pastor picking my pocket. If you want to hear that sermon, by the way, though, it's, it's online. You can go ahead and listen to that again. How we view other human beings is a reflection of God's priorities. Sometimes we're told by figures of authority that other human beings, people who are created in the image of God, are nothing but destruction of immigrants, taking what's ours. Whenever we go to war, have you ever noticed that whenever nations go to war, they dehumanize the other people? They make, they, through like the, the posters, like it's throughout, again, throughout history, the images, what we're told about the leaders, it dehumanizes them to the point that soldiers can feel like they're just exterminating animals, vermin, not human beings. Because it's all part of this psychology that we do. We, in order to do these things, we have to make people something less. It's interesting that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God has a very far different view of refugees, the displaced, and the dispossessed than most individuals and governments do. And God keeps telling the Israelites, you need to be open to those who are refugees, those who are the displaced, because you were once those people. And yet, 
we fall right back into some kind of way that we, we justify in the kindest of terms the reason why we'd rather have a person die than cross our nation's borders. So let's not forget who our Lord is. Because this is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you guys don't understand who I am. And because you don't understand who I am, you're never going to really know truth. You can worship. You can follow patterns of worship. You can pretend to praise God. And not even pretend. You can be very genuine in what you're trying to do. But you're going to miss the mark if you don't know the priorities of God. You know, one of the verses I find deeply guiding, if you've been here for a while, you know this. I quote this all the time in various ways and forms. Sometimes I'm actually right. Uh, it says this, but the fruit of the Spirit. Now, the fruit of the Spirit is different than gifts of the Spirit. Gifts of the Spirit are the things like speaking in tongues, healing. Uh, even faith and administration are considered spiritual gifts. But the fruit of the Spirit is the character and nature of God. And these are things that every Christian is to be growing in. These are, this is the character and nature of God. And he says this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. That last sentence used to confuse me, you know, when I was a younger believer. But what the Apostle Paul is saying is that there is no law saying that it's wrong to be too loving. It's wrong to be too good. It's wrong to be too kind. There is no law against doing these things too much. But there are human laws against these things, aren't there? What are we told? Well, if you're too good or you're too kind, someone's going to take advantage of you. If you're too loving, someone's going to run over you. If you're too patient, you're going to find someone aggressively, just kind of you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. There are tons of human laws against these things. And when you're faced with that and you hear that, I want you to remember something. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, knowing full well that we would take advantage of him. Because we have. We celebrated communion today. Communion is a memory, a remembrance of Christ's sacrifice upon the cross. Have I taken advantage of Christ's love and his goodness and his mercy? Has the whole world taken advantage of Christ as he was crucified? He said to the Father, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing so that Jesus could become sin for us so that we could have his righteousness. I am saved because I take advantage of Jesus. I do. And so do you if you're saved. Because he gave everything. Now, Jesus wants us to take advantage of this. It's a difference. He's not up there going, oh, man, this is terrible. People are taking advantage of me. He doesn't say that. In fact, he goes beyond that and just says, Father, just hold this, don't hold this against them. And I think there he's looking at the crowd who are laughing at him and spitting on him and throwing things at him, mocking him, saying, hey, come down off the cross if you're who you say you are. And Jesus just says, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're saying. They don't know who I am. They don't understand that one greater than the temple is now upon the cross. They don't understand that the Son of Man, who's the Lord of the Sabbath, has been beaten and crucified by the very ones who hold to the Sabbath as being the law. They don't get it. 
But God knew that a lot of people weren't going to get it. And to this day, a lot of people don't get it. They just think Jesus is just another one of these great men out there, another prophet, just another way of the many ways to find God. Understand God's priorities. And if you understand His priorities, you'll begin to act through the power of the Holy Spirit in a way that you can consciously understand how to reflect Christ into the world today. Is being part of a church important? Yes. Why? Because God loves the church. It's a gift to you and to me. It's the place where we as the living stones form a temple to worship God. We don't need to have some big opulent place. It's us. It's the people. Does God find worshiping together important? Is it important to have a kind of Sabbath? Sure. It is important to have a Sabbath. It is important to take that time, that time to, to, to stop and to reflect and think. I was just talking to that with a, a young lady this morning. It's important to stop and to be able to think and to reflect and what it is you're doing with your life because busyness Busyness just leads you from one day to the next, one week to the next, one month to the next, one year to the next. And I can't tell you as a pastor how oftentimes I've been with people who are coming to the end of their life and they realize that they haven't lived. All they've done is just exist from day to day, from week to week, from month to month, from year to year. And then finally, when they're on their bed dying, they have time to think, they're full of regrets because they never really lived. And in that last moment of reflection, which is forced upon them by either illness or old age, instead of being able to look forward to what eternity might mean for them, they look back with regret. That's a terrible way to live. God doesn't want that for you. He wants you to live with Him now and preparing yourself to live with Him for eternity. So may we seek to live as our Lord, the one of whom it is written, Here is my servant which I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory and in his name nations will put his, their hope. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the truths that are in it, both to us personally and even to nations around the world. On every level, you are the Lord. And we pray you help us and you would guide us in knowing how to live out your lordship. That we wouldn't become just a people who's follow a dry religion based on fulfilling certain tasks. We know things need to be done, but just like any relationship that is deep and is rich, we have to act out of love and relationship, not just only out of a sense of following some rules somewhere. Obligation isn't a bad thing, but obligation needs to be tempered with an understanding as to what we're obligated to. And we're thankful you're willing to give yourself to us, that you're willing to be taken advantage of. Scripture says that, you, uh, that uh, before we were even saved, you died for us. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, you died for us. 
And we thank you that you were willing to allow us to take advantage of your grace and of your mercy. And as we celebrated communion today, we thank you for the, the reminders that you give us because we are so easily a forgetful people. Lord, we pray as we leave, as we prepare to leave this place and go into the world today around us and tomorrow as we go to whatever form of work we do nowadays with corona, that you would have us be mindful. And when people say things like, oh, I just don't like the church or I just don't get anything out of this or that, may we have the answers to tell them, you know, God loves the church. And, uh, and there's something that can be there for you if, you if you want to seek it and find it. And may we be the salt and light you want us to be, not because we're obligated to it, but because we love you and we want to share the good news we have. We thank you and we praise you for all you do, all you will do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.